Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make sure you are aware of a couple of things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you have access to other resources, information about who we are and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. The message you're about to watch is week one of our brand new sermon series, Pages, the story of God's love through the Bible. Once again, thanks for checking out this message here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. The American Bible Society, in partnership with the Barna Research Group, annually conducts a study of the 100 largest media markets in America. And they do this study to try and understand how people in the largest cities across the United States interact with the Bible. The study that they do is called the Bible-Minded Cities Report, and they release it annually. And to give you an idea of Bible-minded, what they're trying to determine is uh, that the, some of the things the study asks is those who report reading the Bible weekly or those who assert to understand that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches so after looking at the study, my, my kind of interpretation of what they're looking at and calling Bible-minded is cities that have an understanding of the Bible, they read the Bible, and they believe the Bible says, or they believe that what the Bible says to be true is true. And what they do with this study every year is they release a list of the most and the least Bible-minded cities in America. And I'll be honest with you, I'd never heard of this study before. But last, uh, last year, I was, uh, somebody posted a tweet on Twitter about this particular study, and it caught my attention, the most and the least Bible-minded cities in America. And so I opened the study, began to dig into it and look at it, and there was a statistic out of that study that I want to share with you this morning. In 2017, the report identified Las Vegas as tied for the fourth least Bible-minded city in America. Now, I guess that statistic caught me um, in a way that, I mean, I know that our city is lost. And we've talked about many times here in our church the reality of the fact that 92% of people who live in our city do not claim to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus so there's a vast lostness, but this was just kind of saying the same thing a different way, and I guess it just struck me when I read it, that, that when you study people's understanding of the Bible, <laughs> their consistency to read the Bible at all, and their belief that what the Bible teaches is true, that Las Vegas, out of the 100 largest metropolitan areas in America, we're fourth from the bottom in being Bible-minded. And when I read it, it really produced a burden in my heart. My heart broke again for our city. 
I came back and I met with our pastors here and we began to talk and pray about what, what can we do? How can we get engaged in light of this understanding about our city? And after much prayer, it really led to what we're beginning today. This weekend, we are launching into a new series and the series we're calling Pages, the story of God's love through the Bible. We're going to take 11 weekends, beginning this weekend and for the next 10, and we are going to walk through the story of the Bible, starting in Genesis 1-1 and going all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. In 11 weeks, we're going to dig in and show you that the Bible tells one amazing story. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking, Pastor, we were just here. It took you a year and a half to preach through 1 John. How are you going to preach through the whole Bible in 11 weeks? Well, we're going to go really fast, all right? But obviously, we can't dig into every every subplot and every detail of Scripture over 11 weekends. But what we hope to do is show you the arc of the story. There is one story from beginning to end. The Bible tells this story about God's love for the people of the world. Now, we've given you a couple of tools this morning to help you as we walk through this together. When you came in in your seat, there were two things. I want you to grab them and hold them up and wave them at me, all right? So I know you got them. When you came in this morning, these were in your seat. I want you to look at the bigger one first. The bigger one is what we're calling the reading plan. So what we've given you is a reading plan so that while we're walking through this series for 11 weekends, you can be reading along with us daily in Scripture and reading the rest of the story, the parts that we're not going to be able to get into. We've given you some Scripture so that you can see this story of the Bible. On the back of this, we've given you some instruction how to take this reading plan and with a journal or a notebook daily sit down and read the scripture. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to spend time with God reading his word, allowing the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and speak truth into your life, teaching you the story of the Bible. Now, there's one typo here on the back. It says to start this tomorrow morning, but we want you to hold it. And next week on Monday morning, February the 12th, if you'll begin this reading plan a week from Monday, and we'll remind you next weekend, but a week from Monday, we wanted to go ahead and give it to you this weekend so you can be getting ready and begin daily reading through the story of the Bible. And every weekend, we're going to be highlighting some different aspects. Now, take the smaller one. It's a bookmark, right? What can you do with a bookmark? You can mark where you're reading in the Bible, but we've given this to you for more than that. We do want you to do that as you read through the Scripture, mark it down with your bookmark. But on the back, we've shown you all 11 weeks and what we're going to be teaching in each of the 11 weekends. So, for example, this week, week one, is the story of God. So you think it's going to be tough to preach the whole Bible in 11 weeks. I'm going to do the whole thing in one sermon this morning. You ready for that? I'm going to give you an overview today of the whole story. And then for the next 10 weekends, we're going to take these pieces and dig through it. Look at week two. Next weekend, the creation. Where did it all come from and why? Week three, the fall. Where did it all go wrong? Week four, the promise. What was God's plan to make it right? Week five, the pictures. How did God reveal his plan? Week six, the law. Why did God give us rules? Week seven, the prophets. How was God proving his promise? Week eight, the incarnation. Who is Jesus and why is he so special? 
week nine. Week nine is going to be Easter weekend here in our country. Easter weekend, the gospel. How did Jesus make us right with God? Week 10, the mission and its church. What is our part in God's plan? And then finally, week 11, the coming kingdom. How does it all end and what comes next? So that's where we're going for the next 11 weekends. I encourage you, be reading along, digging in with us, invite your friends, relatives, co-workers, and let's help Las Vegas move up the list. Let's become a city that understands what the Bible teaches and why. To begin today, I want to give you four introductory truths that are going to be the foundation of everything we're going to talk about over the next 10 weeks. Number one, the Bible is the story of God. I want you to say that out loud with me off the screen. The Bible is the story of God. One of the key components of every story is its main character. All stories have some similar components, but one of those components is that every story has a main character or characters. And one of the ways right out of the gate that many people misunderstand the story of the Bible is they misunderstand who the main character of the Bible is. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Some people believe that the main characters of the Bible are good and evil. And good and evil are locked in this fight for the control of the hearts and lives of people on earth. It's much like if you're any Star Wars fans in the room, right? Some of you like Star Wars, and Star Wars the series is really built around uh, something like that. It's about the force and then the dark side of the force, right? And, and the force is, is, is this good principle, and then there's this dark side that is always trying to win people over to the dark side and overcome the good side of the force. A lot of people think that's what the story of the Bible is. It's the story of good and evil, and we're holding our breath to see which one is going to triumph. But good and evil are not the main characters of the Bible. Some people believe that human beings, we are the main character in the story of the Bible. And isn't it just like us to think the Bible is all about us, huh? But we think the story of the Bible is really all about us. It's about us getting what we want. It's about us getting what we need. It's about us getting our desires met. The whole story of the Bible is really all about us. And you'll hear preachers, especially preachers on television, that will emphasize this. And they do it in such a way that they describe the Bible almost like it's a treasure map. And if you look through here, you can find all of these ways to be prosperous and to be blessed. Or they'll describe the Bible like it's a how-to manual to help you enjoy a healthy and prosperous life. And if you'll just follow the steps of Scripture, that you'll never have any worries. You'll never have any disease. You'll always have all the money that you want. You'll always have all the property that you want. The Bible's the story of how we can be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But human beings are not the main character of the Bible. Some people believe the main characters of the Bible are God and Satan. These two persons, these two great enemies engaged in an eternal battle for the control of the universe. But let me just be really clear this morning. Satan is not 
God's equal foe. Satan is a created being, a fallen angel who's already been defeated. The victory has already been won. Jesus has already knocked his teeth out. All he can do now is just gum us a little bit, right? Listen, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, listen what it says. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Our enemy has already been defeated. The victory is already won. The battle is already over. God and Satan are not, this war, the main characters of the Bible. Then, Pastor, who is the main character of the Bible? Well, let me be very clear. There's only one main character of the Bible, and that is God himself. God is the main character in the story of the Bible. The Bible is the story of God. That's why when Isaiah introduces him in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, God is about to speak, and Isaiah describes him, and he says, Thus says the high and exalted one. He describes him with these two adjectives, high and exalted. What do those mean? First of all, the word high describes what he is by himself alone. God holds the highest place in everything. Why? Because he's God. But when you compare him to anything else, he's exalted. That describes what he is in relationship to every other created thing in the world. All by himself, he is high. He holds the highest place. But in comparison to anything, God is exalted. That's why I love what F.C. Jennings said about him. He said, alone in unrivaled supremacy, There is not one on the same level as himself. Here's what that means. God is in a category all by himself. It's not God and, it's just God all by himself. This is taught from the Old and New Testament throughout the whole story of the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah is writing about God. And listen to what he says about him. Look at it in verse number 6. He says, say it out loud, there is none. You hear that? Stop right there. There is none. In the Hebrew language, this phrase is one word. It's literally translated into English with two words. And here are the two words, not exists. It's an interesting translation, right? doesn't really fit if you write it that way, so they have to write it in a way that helps us understand. But here's what Jeremiah says. There not exists anybody like you. There's no one like you. There's nothing like you. There's no one like you, O Lord. Why? Because you are great, and great is your name in might. There's nobody like him. The word great here is a word that emphasizes the important size and significance of something. God is great. God is great. But this is not just taught in the Old Testament. It's also taught in the New Testament. Paul, in writing a letter to the church in Rome, listen to what Paul says. I love this verse of Scripture. If you don't have this verse memorized, you ought to memorize it, meditate on it. Listen to what it says. For from him speaks of origin, source, and through him. 
It speaks of means by whose hand something is accomplished. And to him, it speaks to purpose, aim, meaning, end. You hear it? For from him and through him and to him are what? Say it out loud. You know what that means? All things. To him be the what? Glory forever. Amen. That little phrase, all things, in the Greek language is just one word. And it speaks to the totality of the whole. Meaning all the big things. Like when you think about the big things, the creation of the world. That's a pretty big thing, right? I mean, everything you and I can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell, in an instant, God opened his mouth and he spoke out of nothing. Ex nihilo, the Latin say, he spoke and everything we know came into existence. It came into being. All the stars, all the galaxies, every human being, God spoke. And he created it all. The Bible says all of creation is from him. It means he's the origin. He's the source. All of creation is through him. Meaning it's by his hands that it happened. And it's by his hands that it's sustained. And all of creation is for him. Meaning this, the heavens declare the glory of God. But get this, get this, all things doesn't just mean all the totality of the whole. This little word, all things, also means every individual part. Here's what that means. The smallest, minute detail of your life is from him, through him. And to him. Here's what that means. We're all breathing in the room this morning. Amen. If the person next to you is not, you might want to elbow them a little bit. We're all breathing. Listen, listen, here's what this means. The very next breath that you're about to take in your body, you're not even thinking about it. Yet the very next breath that you're about to breathe into your body. Let me tell you where that breath came from. It came from him. God is the source. God is the origin. And, and, and my ability to take that breath in, where does that come from? It comes through him. He's sustaining me and allowing me to breathe. And now I'm to leverage everything I'm going to do with my next breath to him for his glory. The story of the Bible is all ultimately about God and his glory. And you and I, don't miss this, we will never understand our place in the story until we understand it's not about us. It's ultimately about him and his glory. Let me tell you what I've realized in my life. When God is most glorified, my life is most satisfied. Every time I start to live for my glory, 
Every time I start to live for my wants, my desires, my needs, you know what it's like? It's like walking around with a cup with a hole in the bottom of it. When I start living for me and what I want and my glory and what people think about me, it's like there's an empty feeling. There's an emptiness on the inside that does not fulfill. But when I begin to leverage all of life, even my next breath for the glory, realizing that there's something, there's someone who's infinitely bigger than me, and I leverage all of that to live for his glory. When God is most glorified, my life, most satisfied there's fulfillment why because that's the reason we were made so let me give you the second thing then this morning not only the bible is the story of god but the bible is the story of god's love for all people you see not only does a good story have main characters all good stories also have a plot And the plot of the Bible is about God's love for all people. Let me break it down for you in four distinct parts. And what we're going to do over the next several weekends is we're going to be unpacking these parts of the plot of the story. In week two, we're going to get to this. Number one, the purpose of God. There's the first part of the plot of the story. God has a divine purpose. God in his sovereignty created us with meaning, significance, and value. What is that meaning, significance, and value? Here it is. God created human beings as the crowning point of his creation. He gave us dominion over all creation. And God created us, and here's the main purpose for your existence. He created us to know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. That's the reason we were made. And you will never experience life. Life is always going to feel like that cup with a hole in the bottom of it until you understand you've been made to know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. Let me read it to you. Look in the Bible at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to what the Bible says. God created man in his own image. That's a good place to stop and say, wow. We can meditate on that for a while, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Important statement about human beings. We were made in the image of God, male and female, equally expressing the image of God. But then look at the next phrase. What does it say next? God did what? God, say it out loud blessed them. Isn't that interesting? Think about it. The word bless in Hebrew comes from a word that means to bow down. It means to to kneel. Often in the scripture, it's used to refer to what we do towards God, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When we talk about us blessing God, we understand that's us bowing low in worship because he is high, he is exalted, and we are unworthy to be in his presence. So we bow low before him in worship and in praise, blessing the name of God. Wouldn't it make sense 
The Bible would say God created human beings in his own image. God created them after his likeness. He made them male and female. Wouldn't it make sense that the next sentence would be, and they blessed God? Right? That we bowed low and began to worship him. Why does it say God blessed them? Let me tell you why. Because it's a picture of God condescending so that he's coming low so that we could be in his presence. God created man and woman. And then the Bible says God came among them. God manifested his presence among them so that he could pour out his favor. God made them as the crowning point of his creation. And then God, in in his infinite sovereignty and by his grace, chose to condescend and manifest his presence among them so that he might pour out his favor on them. Then look at the next phrase. God blessed them and God, what's that word? That ought to make you say amen. You say, what do you mean? God didn't have to speak to us. We didn't deserve to hear God's voice. We didn't merit God communicating with us. God was not lonely. God was not in need of us. God wasn't looking for companionship. God existed in eternity past in perfect unity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God was lacking in nothing. And yet God made us. And then he came and manifested his presence among us. And then get this, God spoke to God communicated. Why, why is this in the Bible? Let me tell you why. Because it's teaching us why God made us. God made us to know him, to love him, to be known and loved by him, and to live our lives in the reality of his presence out of the overflow of intimate communion with him and in fellowship with other people. It's the very reason we were made. Right here in the beginning, we see God made us. God manifested his presence among us. God began to speak to us in fellowship. And now all of life is supposed to be lived out of the overflow of intimacy with God. That's the meaning of life. That's the purpose of God. Then there's a second part to the plot, the problem of sin. You know what happens next in the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They broke God's law. And when sin entered into the picture, get this, sin robbed us of the ability to have a relationship with God. God is holy. God is holy, and because he's holy, the Bible teaches us that he cannot, he will not manifest his presence among and live in fellowship with sin. Our sin caused us to be lost, to to lose the ability to have that relationship with God. Let me show it to you in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Look what it says. 
but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. Get this. So that he does not hear. What a statement. We were made to know him, love him, be known by him, and be loved by him. We were made to live in fellowship with him in the reality of his presence and communion with God and out of the overflow of intimacy with him to enjoy fellowship with everyone else. But the Bible says because of our sin, we've been cut off. Let me try to illustrate it to give you a visual. Use my hand. Imagine this finger represents me and this finger represents God. When God created us, he made us like this. He made us to live in fellowship with him. He made us to be in oneness with him and in communion with him and for all of life to be lived out of this sensual reality of us enjoying intimate fellowship with God. I want this hand to represent sin. When sin entered the picture... It severed our relationship with God. We lost the ability to know God, to be known by God, to live in the presence of God. We lost that. Sin separated us from God. And no matter how good we tried to be, how moral we try to be, how religious we try. Nothing we could do could change the fact that we'd already sinned against God. And because of our sin, we deserve to spend eternity separated from God. But there's a third part to the plot. Not just the purpose of God and the problem of sin. This third part some good news. The promise of a Savior. You see, when we get to... Weeks, week number four, five, six, and seven, we're going to find that God gave a promise. God loved us so much that even though we'd sinned against God, God made a promise. God said, I am going to send someone into the world, and he is going to redeem that which you lost because of sin. He is going to restore the brokenness that exists in our relationship. You say, where do you see that promise? Look at it in Genesis chapter 12. God made an appearance to a man named Abram. He becomes known as Abraham, one of the main characters of the Old Testament. Abraham hears from God. God speaks in Genesis chapter 12. It opens with this phrase, Now the Lord said to Abram, Thank God that he continued to speak to us. The Lord said to Abram, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What was he talking about? He was beginning a covenant with Abraham. And here's what he told Abraham. Abram, I'm going to begin a covenant relationship with you. And through you and your wife, you're going to have a son. You're going to call his name Isaac. And Isaac is going to be the father of a new nation, a new people, a people that I've chosen unto myself. He said they're going to be a great people. They're going to be a mighty people. But he said, Abraham, what I'm promising today is not just about you and your descendants. What I'm promising you today is that I'm going to send someone through your line. I'm going to send someone through your people who ultimately will be a blessing to every family on the face of the earth. He's promising a Savior 
who would come. You say, how do you know that's what he's promising here? Because the New Testament tells us. Let me show you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Look at it up here. The Scripture. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What's he talking about? The word justify is a word that means to be made right with God. He says the Scripture foreseeing that God was going to send someone who would justify the Gentiles by faith. The Scripture did what? Preached the gospel. Well, when did the Scripture preach the gospel? Beforehand to Abraham. When was the gospel preached to Abraham? When he said, all the nations will be blessed in you. That covenant that God made with Abraham was a promise that God was going to send a Savior through the family line of Abraham that would make it possible for you and I to be made right with God. And here's the fourth part of the plot. Because it was more than a promise. He fulfilled it. The fourth part of the plot is the person of Jesus. Jesus came into the world as a fulfillment of the promise that God had made because of the problem of our sin to restore the very purpose that God had created us for, which was an intimate love relationship with himself. We're going to get here in weeks eight and nine in this series, but it's why Matthew writes in Matthew chapter one, and he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will, what? What does it say he's going to do? Read it out loud. Save his people from their sins. Jesus is the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis who would come through the line and lineage of Abraham and save us and restore that which we lost because of sin. You say, how did Jesus do that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me show it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin. Here's what that means. You see, none of us were qualified to deal with the sin that separated us from God because we were sinners. It required someone who was sinless. And so God did what you and I couldn't do. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world. God became a man. And God dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life. Jesus never once violated the law of God. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. So God the Father made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Here's what that means. On the cross, Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin. And he took it on himself. Every wicked act, every lustful thought, every wrong attitude, every bad thought, every action that stepped across the boundary of God, every act of sin, every attitude of sin, the very reality of sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. He took, the Bible says he became sin. What does that mean? It means on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath and all of the judgment and all of the penalty that we deserve because God is holy and we sinned and we deserve to spend eternity. God poured out all of the judgment of sin on Jesus. And Jesus 
died for us. But he did not stay dead. He rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin so that now you and I can put our faith in Jesus and guess what? What we lost because of sin through Jesus, guess what? We get restored back to a right relationship with God. You say, let me show it to you. Look at the verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the what? Say it out loud. The righteousness. Oh, this is so good. I can't wait to tell you what this means. The righteousness of who? Here's what a lot of people think. They think that when we come to know Christ, that we get justified. And here's what they think it means to be justified. I've even heard people say it this way, and it sounds cute, but justified means God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Sounds cute, right? You know what's wrong? It's theologically incorrect. Because that's not sufficient. You know what that would be? That would be God restoring me back to Adam's best righteousness before sin in the garden. How'd that wind up? Not too good, right? He didn't restore me back to Adam's best righteousness. The Bible didn't say he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be restored to the righteousness of Adam. No, what did it say? So that we might become what? The righteousness of who? <laughs> Ooh, here's what that means. On the cross, here's the great exchange that took place. Jesus took all of my sin on himself. He died for it all. He rose again from the dead. And when I put my faith in him, guess what that means happens for me? I get to be clothed in the very righteousness of God himself. Meaning that God doesn't look at me as a sinner trying to do my best. God sees me as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Does that mean I earned that? No. Does that mean I deserve that? No. Does that mean I live up to that every day? No. But by the amazing grace of God, I've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus, been made right with God, and the fellowship has been restored. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the Bible. Now, let me mention two last things in clothing. Number, closing. Number one, the Bible is the story of God's activity through his people. This is one of the subplots there in the Bible. It's the story of God's activity through his people. From the end of the Gospels up to the book of Revelation, we find God now sharing his story with the world through his people, the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says it this way, but you'll receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here's what this means. Don't miss this. God, in his grace, now invites you and I to be a part of the story. We now get the privilege of using our job, our skill, our passion, where we live, work, and play, to leverage all of that to share the story locally 
and extend that as we cross cultural barriers globally to the ends of the earth. That means that everything in my life, my job, my health, my family, my resources, my talents, my gifts, my education, everything exists to be leveraged for the sake of the mission, which is inviting people to be a part of the amazing story of God and be restored to meaning, purpose, and value. And here's the last thing. The Bible is the story of God's glorious future for his people. We're going to get here in week 11. All good stories have main characters. All good stories have a plot. But finally, all good stories have an end. And let me just let you in on a little secret. I've read the end of the story, and it is glorious. It's glorious. Let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle. It's a word that means dwelling place. Don't miss this. The dwelling place of God is where? Among men. What did we lose in the garden? We lost the ability to enjoy the manifest presence of God and live in fellowship with him. What happens at the end of the story? Through Jesus, everything we lost gets restored. Look what it says. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and they shall be his people. God with us. Everything that we lost because of sin gets restored and redeemed through the person of Jesus. And look what he goes on to say. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed Oh, wait, here's what that means. The end of the story is really just the beginning. It's the beginning of enjoying eternity as God intended in his presence, knowing him, loving him, being known and loved by him. And out of the overflow of our love relationship with him, We get to enjoy relationships and fellowships with one another for all eternity in the beauty of the world and the universe that he not only created but now has recreated and redeemed. And that's the story of the Bible. You say, how do I get in? On the story of the Bible. One verse I'll close with. John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on his name. How do you get in on the story of God? 
really simple. It's by faith in Jesus. You say, that seems too easy. Listen, it's easy for you and me because he's already paid the price. There was nothing you and I could do. He did it all so that we could be made right with God. Have you, by faith, ever believed in Jesus? You see, we don't worship this book. We worship the one that this book tells us about. The story is all about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. God, thank you for speaking into our lives this morning. And God, I pray right now that you would take your word as only you can and speak into the hearts and lives of people in this room. God, may your Holy Spirit communicate divine truth right now beyond the words of a man or a preacher. May you bring conviction. May you save. May you restore. May you redeem. As you sit there quietly before the Lord this morning, in just a moment, we're going to have a time to respond. It's not a time to slip out early. It's a time for us to respond to what God has spoken today. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe maybe you're sitting here and for the first time in your life, you can say, I, I actually understand the story of the Bible. Maybe before you didn't really get what it was all about, but now you say, man, I understand the story of the Bible. And you're ready to receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life that can restore and redeem your relationship to God. Listen, you can't get there on your own. It's only through Jesus. In just a moment when we stand to sing this powerful hymn of the faith, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, when we stand to sing, you just slip out from where you're going to be standing Come down one of these aisles. I'm down here at the front. I've got pastors over on both sides of the stage. You come to any one of us, and here's all you have to say. I need Jesus. That's it. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a relationship with God. For others of you today that are already followers of Jesus, maybe God's broken your heart like he has mine over our city, and you just want to come and get in one of these altars and just cry out to God on behalf of our city that is so lost and in such need of the story of God, the gospel, the good news. So many in our city don't know it. They've never heard it. Maybe you just want to come get in one of these altars and just cry out to God on behalf of the city of Las Vegas. Maybe there's someone specific that you know, a friend, a relative, a coworker, a neighbor that needs Jesus, and you just want to come and get in one of these altars and just pray for them by name. Or maybe today you have something on your heart, maybe something with your job, your health, a relationship, your marriage, your kids, your finances, and you just need a pastor to pray with you and for you. We're we're here at the front. We'd be honored to pray with you. For the rest of us, this is a moment to worship God, to bow low and worship Him. Father, have your way. Speak in this moment. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.